Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. A quick reminder that we have the Bulwark live stream Thursday night, uh, if you are a member of Bulwark Plus. And by the way, if you haven't subscribed yet to Bulwark Plus, uh, we have a lot of things that that I'd like to uh, just sort of highlight. Uh, the Morning Shots newsletter, uh, JVL's Triad, our whole host of podcasts. If you haven't checked it out, by the way, uh, Tim Miller has a great piece about the ongoing fundraising scam by the National Republican Congressional Committee. You might have read over the weekend about the Trump campaign's uh, scamming of its own supporters where they would pre-check boxes that would that would um, cause their contributions to recur so that if you, you know, donated $500 to the former guy, um, you would automatically be be tagged for another five hundred dollars again and again and again until Sunday you woke up and you did you had given eight thousand um, dollars. They had to refund a lot of it, but uh, outside of politics, this would be known as uh, as credit card fraud. Well, apparently, you have uh, other other Republican fundraising entities who are doing essentially the same kind of thing. So, joining me on the podcast today, Josh Kroshauer from Nas- the National Journal uh, comes back. Uh, how you doing, Josh? Great. Good to be back on the show, Charlie. All right. So I, I wake up this morning, metaphorically speaking, to see that Marjorie Taylor Greene has hauled in $3.2 million in contributions in the first quarter, which is a staggering number and really tells you something about the new normal um, in the Republican Party, doesn't it? Well, it tells you a lot about the changing nature of fundraising these days. And if you're one of the craziest people in Congress, if you're one of the people who tries to get on cable news instead of actually work to to legislate, you're going to be a a big fundraising powerhouse. Uh, We saw that with AOC last last cycle when she was elected. We see that with Marjorie Taylor Greene. We see that with all the Trumpiest of Republicans. And look, I mean, you saw that with even going back to like 2016, you know, we saw that with Bernie Sanders and a lot of the most uh, progressive voices in the in the Democratic Party. What works for governing doesn't work anymore for 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 good for good politics. And, you know, it's with with the Internet. and, And now that you have an infrastructure on the Republican side for these small dollar donors to to give and give a lot, uh you have the potential for these very outrageous extreme voices to bypass the tra- traditional institutions of fundraising and of governing of everything that normal lawmakers do and just become celebrities and raise millions of dollars for their campaigns while doing so. I, I, at the risk of becoming a broken record about this, I mean, this really is a sea change in American politics for people who think of politics as being about, you know, large corporations writing checks and, you know, big packs writing, uh, you know, big, you know, seven figure checks to political parties or to politicians. That's not the model anymore. So it's kind of interesting, this juxtaposition of the alienation of the Republican Party from corporate America at the very time when the fundraising base has switched from those big corporate checks to these small dollar donations like we're seeing with Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, this really is a, a, a shift in the in the center of gravity of political fundraising, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's part of the larger story that institutions no longer have the same influence in politics and in, in, in kind of crafting uh, kind of a cent- centrist politics on both sides. And you have the loudest voices um, being able to kind of bypass the system. 
And, you know, within the Republican Party, I think you're right, Charlie, it, it's become it's a sea change. It's a revolution taking place. Mitch McConnell, uh, you know, is the de facto institutional leader of the Republican Party these days. Maybe Kevin McCarthy you could put in that category too. But it's the grassroots. Uh, it's it's a very right wing grassroots Republican voters who are giving you know twenty dollars whenever they see Marjorie Taylor Greene on TV, whenever they're on their Facebook feed and they see you know Gates doing something ridiculous. The the, the those that money piles up and and it actually manages to. Uh, uh, outdistance a lot of the the money that corporations or, or well-heeled donors are able to give. So this is sort of like the revenge of the nerds, the revenge of the <laughs> of the, of the grassroots, because they're actually. I mean, and, and this actually started with Act Blue and Bernie Sanders, and you know, remember in 2016, Charlie, we were stunned how much money Bernie Sanders was able to raise in that presidential campaign against Hillary Clinton, who was a fundraising juggernaut. But the power of online donations was, was really laid bare in that campaign. Well, Republicans were a little bit slower to catch on. Trump, you know, was not, to put it mildly, a popular with the big donor class in the Republican Party. But we, it was shown that you can raise a lot of money through these small dollar donors and, and certainly through this sort of celebrity, politico celebrity culture that Trump inculcated. So you're seeing like Lauren Boebert, you know, another one of these newly elected freshmen who has taken these extreme positions and tried to become a sort of conservative celebrity, also raised almost a million dollars in her, her first oh, fundraising. Right. Another, so, I mean, another, is, yeah, Q, Q, QAnon adjacent congressman. Yeah, it pays to be crazy. And that's that's the problem with Washington right now. That's the problem with our politics. And it's a problem. I mean, it's a problem in trying to get things done, trying to actually get legislation passed uh, or or for the Republicans even having an agenda that they can run on for 2022. So I'm I'm on record as being a never Bernie guy, but Bernie actually represents a political movement and an ideology. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a celebrity because she's a bigot and a crackpot who who was so extreme that she was stripped of all of her committee assignments. I mean, this is the thing is it 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 pays to be crazy and and this is the incentive structure in the in the Republican party right now. And it m- makes me wonder about, you know, whether or not Matt Gates w- what's going to happen with Matt Gates. I I I think there's there's kind of a the conventional wisdom um is that of course he's he's going to go down. But you know what? It, it is, and, and by the way, he's in the news again today. Two big stories: New York Times reporting that he had sought a blanket pardon from Donald Trump before he left office, which is interesting. Also, then a report that he had been one of the um, more rigorous opponents of legislation that would have limited—I mean, sort of would have banned so-called revenge porn, passing around you know naked pictures of of your former partner. And he apparently took the position that uh, you know if you took a picture of your girlfriend doing something, you owned it, and, you know, the government shouldn't restrict it, whatever. But he's um, making a public appearance this weekend uh, at uh, Women for America First, which was the organization behind the big rally on January 6th. This was the the people who uh, helped organize the rally that turned into the insurrection. And they are, because irony is, of course, as you know, uh, Josh, uh, has been beaten to death by hammers many times, the uh, Women for America First uh, meeting is called the Save America Summit. <laughs> Save America. And Matt Gates is their speaker because if you're Women for America, who, who do you want to hear from more than Matt freaking Gates right now? <laughs> and I, so, in the back of my mind, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking. So we're thinking, you know, he's under investigation. He has all of these problems, but the next quarter. 
he may be hauling in a million dollars because he's standing up against the, you know, the corporate media and the deep state because that's the way it works. It's not just that crazy works. We're in a world now where you can behave really, really badly and it not only doesn't hurt you, it becomes a selling point. Yeah, so am I, am I being too cynical here? I, no, you're not being cynical, no, enough, Charlie. No, no, <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, there's no shame in politics. You know, outrageousness uh, doesn't force you to feel shameful about about even potentially criminal behavior. In the case of of Gates, uh, Trump sort of set that standard, and 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 we're, we're sort of defining deviancy downward in our politics, especially on the Republican Party these days. Um, you know, the the, the the bigger question is like, where does the power lie? Does does it lie? With leadership, does it lie with institutions, or does it lie with the people that are are the most outrageous? And I mean, there's an institutional collapse writ large in in in, in our society and certainly in our politics. Uh, but there's also you know this notion that like whoever is the enemy of my en- whoever is the enemy of my my enemy, it yeah. doesn't matter what they do. We saw this with Trump, but even there has been some reporting in the Panhandle, a very conservative you know part of Florida where Gates represents. And, you know, even Republican voters seem to not trust the media, not trust the FBI, uh, you know, reporting uh, about about this investigation that could lead to an indictment fairly soon against the congressman. There's there's a disbelief and unwillingness to 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 trust traditional uh, news organizations, traditional forms of authority. And that has created this sort of nihilism. You know, nothing matters anymore. And and it's really, really a a problem uh, for the Republican Party. Well, well, I want to move on to some of the more substantive things here. We have a lot to talk about today. But, uh, you know, speaking of uh, January 6th, we just had the anniversary yesterday. It's been only, I think it's only three months. It's, it's kind of mind blowing to me that, uh, that that just occurred uh, three, three months ago. But the, um, the attempt, the, the ongoing effort to memory hole that or to retcon, basically do the historical revisionism continues. Let me just play a very short sound by... Here's Tucker Carlson, who's who's not only um, aggressively rewriting the history of what happened on January 6th, but last night amounted a defense of the guy with the zip ties. People remember this was the guy with the mask and he had zip ties, shows up with his mom to the Capitol. And we don't know what he intended to do with the zip ties, but I mean, the, the implication is that they were going to take members of Congress prisoner, hold them hostage. It's one of the most graphic images from the day, but here's Tucker Carlson trying to retcon that. That two defendants, Lisa Eisenhart and her son, Eric Munchell, should face indefinite detention now, neither Lisa Eisenhart nor her son damaged any property at the Capitol or committed any violence. They just walked in to what Zip we tie. used to refer to as the People's House. Zip tie. And yet somehow Joe Biden's Department of Justice convinced a trial judge that Lisa Eisenhart was a, quote, threat to our republic and that her son was a, quote, would be martyr. Keep in mind, these are people whose crime was trespassing in the Capitol. We're not endorsing that, but some perspective, please. Ah, uh, okay. Of all the people, so so now the zip tie guy is the victim. So by the time this is over, Josh, it's it's it it's going to be turned on its head. I mean, this is the this is the upside down world we live in. Yeah, I mean, the, the worrisome thing is that what you, what you see in cable news and and, and on Tucker show often reflects the mood of, of of today's Republican electorate. So I mean, I think he's sort of reflecting a lot of the the biggest uh, issues, the biggest you know animating forces. And yeah, it is it is a little uh, surprising, alarming, if you will, that uh, you know that 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 
we're kind of downplaying the Tucker's downplaying the uh, what happened on January 6th and the, the significance of what happened. Um, I, though I think, you know, the sadly, and it, one, one of the consequences of this 24 seven social media culture is that we, we forget even major consequential events like the two days later, know, week later know. you know, we, we were talking about, you know, the horrible mass shooting uh, in, in, in Colorado a couple weeks ago, that that's largely been forgotten. The Capitol, you know, the murder of a Capitol Hill policeman just last week is barely in the news anymore. I mean, the, the news cycle goes so fast two years or a year and a half from now is going to be a lifetime in politics. And I do wonder, uh, I, I wouldn't have said this, you know, a couple months ago, but now I kind of wonder how uh, significant the events of January 6th are going to be in the, in, in the 2022 election. Boy, you know, that's, it's so interesting that you would say that because it's, it's, almost, it's not just the news cycle. I, I wonder if our brains are changing, you know, the way that we process information. <laughs> because No, no, but it's true because yeah. we, we just are not able to hold a thought for very yeah. long and we simply move along. So before we have a chance to process what is the significance of that, it's already gone and we've moved on to something else. By the way, I love hearing the birds in the background. I just wanted just to, to, you know, for people wondering, but, but because it, it, this is to me, Josh, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, okay, this is all grim. It's all bad, except it's spring and spring is coming back. Okay. One of the other things going on, of course, is, is the, you know, we, we live in a, in a media wars where one of the, the major, I mean, one of the major drives of our politics is whether or not people believe things that they see and hear in the media and the way in which many Republicans have used distrust of the media to advance their own careers. And some of our listeners may not like this, but I I'm I'm in the camp right now that thinks that that CBS 60 Minutes just gave a massive in-kind contribution to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. They ran a piece about him and the distribution of the the vaccines. I'm not a fan of DeSantis. I'd be glad to devote a whole podcast criticizing his approach to the coronavirus. But this seems to have misfired badly. It seems that they 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 got the wrong end of the stick by implying somehow that that he was working with this well-known chain Publix because he'd gotten campaign contributions. And he, of course, now has weaponized this. And I, I'm guessing that going back to our first conversation, that Ron DeSantis is going to raise tons of money off of this 60 Minutes piece. Your take on it, Josh. Yeah. So first, the big picture. Um, you're right, Charlie, that distrust in the media and journalism is at all time lows. And well, some of it is because former President Trump called us fake news and, and, and constantly criticized the press. I mean, a lot of it is also our, our own doing. And, and you mentioned the 60-minute story, uh, really taking out of context the, the nature of campaign finance donations. And it was really a story that, that implied correlation, or sorry, implied causation when there was just correlation. Lots of companies, big companies, give donor donations to politicians of both parties. That doesn't mean that there's a pay-to-play uh, aspect going on there, yet that's what that story on 60 Minutes implied pretty pretty strongly against all evidence. Um, you know, the Georgia, we, 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 I'm sure we're going to be talking yeah. about Georgia a little bit, but, you know, there's a lot of reason to be critical about the intent of Georgia Republicans in passing election laws, but when you actually read the legislation and, and compare it to the coverage of, of how that legislation was described and misrepresented, you know, that also raises a lot of concerns about how, you know, just basic coverage of, 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 of legislative activity is covered these days, whether whether we try to, you know, put more heat in our coverage than actual shedding light in, in what the news actually is. So, and there's also the incentive structure 
you know, on the cable networks where, you, you know, whenever I go on MSNBC, um, I love, you know, I love Morning Joe. I, I watch it every morning. But, you know, a lot of times I'll get whenever I just try to present my, my analysis straight in a straightforward manner, people who are very, very progressive don't like I'm not giving the partisan red meat. And the same thing when I'm on Fox, if I'm, if I'm criticizing former President Trump, I'll get a lot of negative feedback. And I, I, I get a lot of negative feedback these days because I'm trying to play things that, you know, report things objectively, play things down the middle. So that the, the whole incentive structure in, in the media and increasingly, I think, in the print press as well is, is worrisome to me. Uh, because I think the incentive structure encourages partisanship. I, no, you're, 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 you're yeah. So you're, I mean, and, so, and, and the and the hardest thing to say is okay. I mean, I, I've I've tried to say this. That, you know, the the Georgia bill has a lot of really deplorable uh, aspects to it. I think it, you know the, the the motivation, some of the consequences may be negative. But then you say, hey, but guys. It is important to get this right. It is important not to misrepresent the details of this. It is important not to have over-the-top rhetoric. So once you try to do that sort of balancing act, the truth actually matters, then you get the blowback. But truth does matter because what you're seeing now is Republicans and conservatives who are trying to, again, you know, co-opt and appropriate the notion of the big lie. You know, we've lived with the big lie Trumpian big lie that the election was stolen. There was all this fraud. Well, now what you're seeing on the right is people are saying, well, no, now the big lie is about Georgia. And you've lied about Georgia being Jim Crow, too. And MLB has lied. And so this has muddied the water. And unfortunately, I think it has made a situation worse. Uh, My sense right now is the right is totally rallying around efforts in Georgia and Texas to suppress votes or to make it harder to vote in part because they're in reaction to the overstating of some of the aspects of the bill. I didn't, I didn't put that very eloquently, but you know what I mean? I, I, no, I, I think that what's happened is, is that I'm seeing that in a complete circling of the wagons among Republicans when there might've been more queasiness, but now it's like, you know, screw you people on the left and the media for criticizing and boycotting Georgia. We're all in on this now. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I guess I could call myself old school. I believe in sort of fact checking, no matter who's who in power is saying something inaccurately. So the Georgia thing is, is just interesting from a political standpoint too, Charlie, because um, you know, look, I think I think my number one rule of politics is that the party that's divided is usually the one that's losing. And up until a few days ago, it was the Republicans in Georgia that were badly divided. I mean, you had, you know, the governor, certainly the secretary of state, Raffensperger, uh, a lot of the folks who really put their neck out there to, to speak truth to Donald Trump uh, were, were, you know, criticizing a lot of the intent of these Georgia Republican legislators. But they ended up kind of being all on the same side when what ended up passing was not what was originally feared. A lot, a lot of the worst provisions, in fact, almost all of them were, were not part of this this election legislation. And yet the same talking points, the same rhetoric from Democrats may, were, you know, was used against it. It, it. it turned people like Gabe Sterling, who, if you, you know, Gabe Sterling was on cable news all the time. He was, right. you know, he got death threats because he was willing to speak truth to power against President Trump. And he was trying to explain that this this bill he he supports it. He actually thinks it's a good piece of election reform legislation, but no one wanted to hear him out. And and, and frankly, that that overreach, as you talk about, Charlie, united the Republicans, the anti-Trump Republicans and the pro-Trump Republicans in Georgia. And and also the Democrats, Stacey Abrams did not want Major League Baseball to move its all-star game out of Atlanta. She wanted to put the pressure on, she wanted the base to be energized on the Democratic side, but she knew that there was a political risk if 
baseball set, you know, move, move the all-star game if corporations boy, were boycotted in Georgia. And now Republicans are united and, and they have a rallying cry against Democrats for the next big election in 2022. And you have a lot of moderate Democrats in the Cobb County suburbs, the kind of swing voters where Democrats did so well in these last two elections that are now, you know, having having a little more skepticism towards the Democrats and, and how they message this bill and, and mm. the over, overheated language they've been using. So and, and also baseball playing out of Atlanta, I think, played, played a big role in that. So, you know, this is this is this is why, you, you know, you, it's all important to just stick to the facts, read legislation, like look at the reporting. Um, there's been a lot of overheated rhetoric on, on all sides when it comes to, to something this, this important. And I think, you know, some people just need to take a deep breath, re- do, do, do the reporting or read the reporting and, and then come to a sober conclusion. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's really unfortunate that uh, that Joe Biden uh, went as far as he did on all of this, and uh, and and unfortunately, the feedback I'm going to get is like, well, how dare you criticize Joe Biden after four years of Donald Trump? Well, it's well after four years of insisting that truth matters, and I think we got to continue saying that that truth matters on this. Hey, speaking of uh, voter integrity and uh, voter fraud and everything, so we had an election here in Wisconsin. Um, no, virtually nobody turned out for it, but I but I voted. And so I show up at my voting, um, my, 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 at the, at the, at the polls and I have my voter ID because that's required in Wisconsin. And so I go up and I present my, my voter ID and they're in the book. And we also have, you know, the election book and you have to sign the election book. You have to have your signature there. And they're on the election book. It says next to my name, uh, absentee ballot requested. And which, which I had, and I didn't, I didn't send my absentee ballot in. It's, and I threw it away. Um, and I showed up in person. So when I show up, give my, my ID, they call over one of the election officials and they said, Mr. Sykes had an absentee ballot sent to him, but he is not using it. He's voting today. And the woman said, well, yes, I have to inform you that if in fact you try to vote with the absentee ballot, that that would be a violation of the law and you would go to jail. (laughs) And I said, thank you. Thank you for clarifying this. But what it was, I thought what was interesting about it is that for people who think that it's easy to do this and get away with with voter fraud, uh, no, it's not at all. So um, I, I did not send in my absentee ballot. I want to clarify this. I'm not going to go to jail. Okay, so I, I want to talk about um, we already talked about uh, Jordan. I want to talk about uh, reopening schools and, and your piece you had earlier this week about that it is not the economy stupid, um, which I found very interesting. What do you make, before we get to that, though, what do you make of the the Mitch McConnell slash Republican turn against corporate America? The all of the senators threatening America of the, the the corporations with dire consequences if they continue to be woke. And here's Mitch McConnell, who up until five minutes ago, and I mean this almost literally, was the number one advocate for the sp- free speech rights of American businesses and corporations. Now saying it's a terrible mistake for these corporations to get involved in politics. So is this real? Is there a real break between the business community and corporate America and the Republican Party, or is this all just sort of culture war kabuki theater? I think it's more kabuki theater, though there is a real shift both in how certain elements of the Republican Party views big business, big corporations, and also how how corporate America has kind of viewed their role in the larger society. And it goes beyond politics. It certainly goes beyond this Georgia election snafu. 
Um, there, there was a, uh, a comment made by some of the leading CEOs in the country in the last couple of years yeah. saying that, you know, the traditional ethos of a, of a CEO to return value to shareholders shouldn't be the only principle anymore, that there should be a certain degree of social consciousness in the corporate boardroom. And, and that's something that really, I think, is what McConnell is getting at. Um, the fact that, you know, they will, they will, you know, they, they view that corporations should be caring about their self-interest, returning value to shareholders, you know, making contributions, making contributions, to, writing to, big to, checks to me. <laughs> there's also, Charlie, a big divide within the, the, the kind of big business community in Washington, the Chamber of Commerce and Mitch McConnell and, and his, you know, uh, efforts to hold the Senate. In, in Republican hands, the Chamber of Commerce had a big shakeup in the last couple of years. They used to almost exclusively give money to Republicans. In 2018, they started to hedge their bets a little bit, give some money to, to moderate Democrats. They gave to a, a couple dozen Democrats in, in, in the last election. Um, so there is sort of when McConnell's speaking of this is certainly a political uh, analysis as well. He, he has been very irritated that the Chamber of Commerce and a lot of these big businesses are not, you know, in the Republican political pockets anymore. They're hedging their bets. They're trying to spend more money for Democrats. And that's been irrit irritating a lot of high profile Republicans, especially McConnell. And I think that also has fueled a lot of the fire in these comments. Okay, so we're in an interesting political moment where the, the the Republicans are really upset with corporate America for taking positions on the Georgia bill and a variety of other things. But uh, Politico has a very interesting piece this morning about how corporate executives are really upset about the Biden infrastructure plan, particularly, especially, or maybe exclusively because of the proposed increases in corporate taxes and the possibility of a global a global tax. So how does this all play together? Because when I asked about whether it was Kabuki theater and all of these Republicans attacking uh, corporate America, not one Republican in either the House or the Senate will vote to raise corporate taxes by one nickel, will they? Let's start with that. There is no. no chance that any of them will, in fact, punish businesses by voting for the smallest increase in the corporate tax. And, and I thought it was notable. This is a few weeks old now. But when Marco Rubio backed the unions in Alabama mm -hmm. against Amazon, he wasn't doing it because he felt that, you know, expanding the rights of unions was good policy. It was basically the, to own the libs or to own, own, own big corporate America in the, in the name of Amazon. So, I mean, even someone like Rubio, who's been more against big business lately uh, than a lot of other Republicans, even he didn't frame it as, you know, let, let, let's make this American policy. It was more of a way to own the libs or own Amazon, at least in that in instance. So, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the other, on the flip side, the chamber of commerce is very, and, and, and big, a lot of corporate, uh, CEOs are very worried about the, the infrastructure bill. They're worried about the hike potentially in the corporate tax rate. Um, this is this is good. I mean, the, the, there are a lot of Republicans that are saying, "I told you so." Like you, you thought you could get some some uh, moderation on the Democratic side. You know, the Democratic coalition is a lot more affluent, a lot more suburban. You know, they have a lot more interest in in, in the interests of big business. But they, on the flip side, they haven't really changed their policy to accommodate the the, the new newly more more. Uh, more woke, if you will, corporate America. So that you know, the chamber, the chamber is getting screwed. Big, big business is getting screwed on all sides. Republicans oh, yeah. are attacking them for the cultural stuff, and yet Democrats aren't really giving them a half loaf on this infrastructure bill, which contains a lot of corporate taxes and, and a lot of spending that they don't think is very uh, efficiently spent. Well, okay, so American business though has been in favor of infrastructure spending in general, at least in theory. How do they think it ought to be paid for? 
I'm just, I'm just interested in all this because I sort of get the fact that people like the idea of building bridges and roads and all of this stuff. And and by the way, broadband is in fact infrastructure. Maybe some of it's too much, but so they're not totally against all of the spending. They're just against paying for it. Or yeah, how, I, do they I have think, an alternative? I think if you talk to three CEOs, Charlie, you probably get four different opinions on what they think of this. And we don't even know the final version of what an infrastructure bill is going to look like. Right. Presumably, they'll have some influence in, 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 a, in a final outcome if, if, if it does get to that point. But I mean, the broader the broadest criticisms are there's a lot of unrelated. Sp- I mean, there's more money being spent on, um, you know, electric vehicles than there is on roads, bridges and, 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 and the hardcore infrastructure that you normally associate with a plan like this. They don't like the tax hikes. They, they think that 28 percent corporate corporate tax rate is, is, is too high, even though that that's that's lower than it was when when before the Trump tax reform of 2017, uh, but they want it to be lower. They, 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 they think that's that's too punitive. Um, and they also think there's a lot of, um, you know, this is an inf- one thing we've seen with Biden is that he labels and brands big, big policy, trillions of dollars in spending in, in positive ways, like an emergency stimulus, infrastructure. But there's a lot of unrelated spending that they don't think is, is very well spent or very well allocated. Both they were critical of that in the stimulus, but they're much more critical of it in, in the proposal for the infrastructure bill. So yeah. you know there, there are a lot of different criticisms they have. Now this is there's there's going to be changes made. There are a lot of Democrats like Joe Manchin that are echoing those same concerns. So there's going to be a legislative process in which some of the which the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, so Joe Manchin says I'm not going to go for a 28% corporate tax increase. Uh, it shouldn't be higher than 25%. Well, okay, you can see how this is now going to be working going to be working out uh, that you're going to go back and forth on all of that. The the you know, the big story speaking of wonky stuff though, the big story of the week is the Senate parliamentarian saying that they can use reconciliation, which as you and I both know, they're going to do. I mean, they may say we haven't yet decided whether we're going to do it, but they're going to do it. So this is going to be another piece of legislation passed on the narrowest of margins. By the way, speaking of narrow margins, and I'm sorry if this sounds somewhat ghoulish, but the death of uh, Congressman Alcee Hastings yesterday, um, the, the 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 Democrats now have only 218 representatives in the House. Um, that is not much of a margin. You're 50-50 in the Senate. The Democrats are really one one person being hit by the bus or getting COVID away from being in a really a world of political hurt, aren't they? I mean, this is one of the most fragile majorities in in American political history, both in the House and the Senate. Yeah, the scope of these ambitious proposals belies the narrow margins that that Joe Biden has and the Democratic Party has in Congress. We, we all talk about Joe Manchin all the time, Charlie. But no one talks about the the majority making House Democrats that are in either Trump districts or one time strong Republican districts in the suburbs where, you know, a lot of the, 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 you know, the notion of a trillion dollar tax hike, even if it's geared towards corporations and the wealthiest Americans, doesn't usually sell well. And and you just need three Democrats to say, I, I, I don't right. know if I want to, to support this, uh, to, to scuttle uh, any legislation, and some, it's cinema, and the, it's Manchin is the loudest senator, Senate Democrat that has concerns, but cinema has the same concerns. John Hickenlooper, Mark Warner, there are a lot of moderate Democrats that aren't as outspoken. They're they're more team, you know, they, they, for their own political interests, they're more uh, quiet team players, but they privately share these same concerns. One other point, Charlie, that um, 
goes back to your, your first point about, you know, the strategy of, of, of the Biden administration. This is where, you know, the, one of the criticisms of the chamber, from, from the chamber rather, is that they're not trying to work with Republicans. They're not trying to work with Mitt Romney or Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins. Um, that, that's intentional. They, they, you know, for whatever reason, they decided they didn't want to waste time trying to even try to deal with the more reasonable, more moderate Republicans. And they've made this an entirely democratic process. I think that could come back to bite them because there are a lot of opportunities for both in the House and Senate, some moderate Democrats to, to say, I don't want to support this or I'm, I'm going to put my, my my foot down. And I think Biden may wish that he had some more uh, face-to-face talks with Susan Collins and Mitt Romney and people like, like that, because I, he could get himself in a lot of political trouble just relying on the 50 Senate votes and the narrow House majority that he does have. Well, I don't disagree with you there, but it's hard for me to imagine that any republic, you know, that that he, whatever good faith effort Biden made to reach out to them, it's hard for me to imagine any Republican voting for a package this large. Maybe the possibility of Murkowski because folks in Alaska love infrastructure plans, love this kind of spending, but I I just don't see it. Hey, before we move on from this issue of corporate America and the Republicans, there's another another aspect of this that's kind of below the radar screen, which is really fascinating. Uh, And the Washington Post highlights it this morning. The, The way that corporate America, which used to load up their boards of directors and their their executive suites with former administration officials are really freezing out anyone that was working in the Trump administration. And and the Post article highlights, and this is kind of surprising to me, highlights Elaine Chow, former uh, Secretary of Transportation and the wife of Mitch McConnell, who apparently is not getting much interest from corporate headhunters because American corporations just do not want to touch any of these Trump people. And so that's an interesting phenomenon that and because you you would think that that even with her Trump ties, the McConnell tie would would make Elaine Chow certainly hireable. But a lot of doors being closed right now. Yeah, that's not all that surprising. They've certainly signaled their distaste for anyone who's worked in the the Trump uh, White House. I think the events of January 6th permanently kind of broke off that, that relationship if there ever was one. Um, but but no, I mean, I think that, that that's what kind of what McCon- McConnell's speech uh, cr- criticizing big business that that wasn't just because of the Georgia election law. It, it was a long time coming where these sort of under the radar fights. I, I talked to you about the Chamber of Commerce mm-hmm. and the fact that they started donating as, as much to Democrats as they did to Republicans last year. That's part of it. Uh, the, the the fact that businesses don't if you feel like they're going to get more of a backlash if, if they hire anyone, even someone who's pretty mainstream from who worked in the Trump administration, you know, that that's part of it. There, there's a collection of grievances that have built up over the last, especially over the last couple of years. And, and Republicans also believe there's sort of a disingenuousness there because corporate America, the chamber was very involved in, in trying to get the Trump tax cuts. You know, they were, they benefited significantly from the, from the corporate tax cuts. And they feel like there's a sort certain, you know, lack of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but a lack of return from, from that, the, from those rewards. They, they, the Republicans view this very transactionally and they feel like the chamber, the chamber and the big business community got almost everything they wanted. And yet they're turning their, their face on even, even some of the more mainstream folks that served in that administration. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the coronavirus. There's some really, really good news in terms of the pace of the vaccination. Uh, President Biden moved up uh, the the deadline for opening up vaccinations to everybody rather significantly yesterday. We're going to hit 200 million, you know, by by day 100. 
And yet there are some pockets of, I would say, you know, the pockets of, of some resistance to getting back to normal life, including school reopening. Um, and I, I saw that you were re, re, retweeting a piece from the, the Associated Press that we still are moving very, very slowly on reopening schools, despite the indications that this is not really a danger or a threat. And the teachers unions continue to drag their feet, even after teachers, the vast majority of teachers, if not all teachers, have been vaccinated. So give me your thoughts on school reopening and, and, and what's what's happening and not happening there. Yeah, the head of one of the two biggest teachers unions in the country said, even by the fall, more research isn't going to be needed to figure out what, what to do. I, I mean, I, I'm sort of, I don't know about you, Charlie, I'm sort of surprised that you know, Biden is the great optimist. He, he, he ran a sunny campaign. He, he's someone who has always been a glass half full kind of politician. There's such great news. There's so many things he can be touting. Um, yet it almost feels like the, the tone of, of, of these public health updates has so much negativity, even though we're, we're doing a great job with vaccination. Uh, you know, Biden himself pro- guaranteed that every single teacher would have had a, a vaccine by the end of last month. And yet we're still seeing very little movement when it comes to full five day a week schooling across the country. Just about 50 percent, I think a little under 50 percent are at that point. And they were doing those are all the red state schools that were were doing that even before Biden came into office. So, I mean, it's sort of mystifying that we've got all this great health news. I mean, I know there are some concerns in certain states about strains and it's always appropriate to be cautious, but there's a lot of good news with the vaccines. There's great news with the, the the case numbers. And yet you see this sort of negativity coming from the Biden administration and a lot of these top them, top public health officials. And I think that could hurt, hurt the, I mean, it's going to be really interesting, Charlie. There are a bunch of big elections in this year, in, in, in November of 2021 or before, uh, there's a Virginia governor's race where, where education and school closures are going to be a big, big issue. Uh, Andrew Yang, in the New York, if you follow the New York City mayor's race, and this is a Democratic primary, and Andrew Yang is running on opening up schools. <laughs> so I, I think this is a real blind spot, frankly, for, for Biden and for Democrats. And if they don't get their act together, they don't start pressuring the, the teachers unions and some of their, their stakeholders to start, you know, saying things are getting good. Like, let's, let's get a path to opening full time pretty darn soon. There could be a big political backlash. Uh, come, come, well, come I, mean, I, 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 under, I understand because I, I, have, I have the same reaction because, you know, I'm, I'm vaccinated now. I'm ready to get back to life. I really am. I mean, it's like, you know, let's have let's have, you know, um, what is what is uh, Tim Miller call it? Uh, you know, hot summer, hot Joe summer, whatever. Uh, but on the other hand, I understand why they're still suffering from PTSD from last year. They're the public health officials do not want to engage in the kind of overly optimistic uh, rhetoric that we had last year. There's also an uptick in some of the cases. There's uh, indications of variants. You have more. Uh, cases of young people. There's some suggestion that maybe some of the sports are having an effect on all this. And you don't want to spike the football on the three-yard line. I really I really get that, that we are so close. Don't be reckless. Don't make us fall back when we are just right there. But the comment about the fall, you know, I, I think people did go, oh, come on. By the fall, what is the possible justification for not sending kids back to school you know, given the pace of the vaccinations, because this is just, you know, um, 
you know, by, by the fall, there's 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 really no teacher in America that wants to be vaccinated who won't be vaccinated. And in fact, I personally think that that should be a requirement. I mean, look, if you send your kids to school, you know, p- parents know this that you have to vaccinate your kids to have them go to school. You have to have all sorts of vaccinations. And if you don't, your child's not going to be able to go to school. So I don't really have a problem with teachers having to be vaccinated, students having to be vaccinated for this, like they have to be vaccinated for other things. And at that point, really, you got to get back. And I don't know. You got to do it. I like your football analogy, Charlie. But the problem, I think, is that we've been at the – three yard line for the last month or two and we're getting five mm. yard penalties even though the defense <laughs> isn't even on the field right i mean it, mm, there's a certain mm. point where you need to get in the end zone and make a play and the thing that i mean i follow this pretty closely i, I wrote a few columns about sort of the politics that's going on behind the scenes uh, there, there is a i don't think this is by any stretch a majority view within the democratic party but among certain activist teachers unions and among certain very progressive elements of the democratic party they almost view this as an opportunity for a new normal, right? I mean, you even heard the vice president, Kamala Harris, kind of using this rhetoric of, we we don't want to go back to the old normal. We want a new normal. And as part of that, you have certain elements, uh, mainly progressive elements of the Democratic Party that almost want to re-envision education. They, they, they want their teachers to t- be able to teach from home. They they want to have, you know, free child care for teachers in California, in, in Los Angeles, California. They're using this as almost like a hostage situation to get a, a bunch of unrelated demands to the pandemic as part of their benefits uh, and as part of part of their, 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 their long term vision for education. And I think, I mean, I, I've been following the rhetoric. Follow, I mean, it, it's, it's just gotten to be absurd. And you, you think that this is not going to, you know, if you think you think that things are going to go back to normal, and in September we're going to have five day a week school. Certainly, Joe Biden said said as much last month. But if you follow sort of these debates, these local fights between the unions and, and the parents, that's not what all these teachers unions want. It's not what all these communities in, in progressive areas are asking for. And that's where I think the rubber hits the road politically. I'm not convinced that all the schools are going to be open five days a week in person in, in September. Okay, well, th- this strikes me as a as a dangerous political overreach by the unions. You know, you you mentioned uh, the call is it Los Angeles the teachers union um, wants to essentially use this to leverage what free childcare for all teachers. Um, which, of course, has no necessary relationship to the pandemic, but which essentially is using this as, you know, to, to hold uh, the district and the taxpayers and the, and the children, obviously, hostage to get that agenda item. Uh, that, that's, that's, that strikes me as, uh, as a little bit reckless on their part. Yeah, I mean to put it my, I mean, and, 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 to put it mildly, yeah. To put it mildly, and, and Charlie, I mean, I have a sort of a, sort of a bird's eye view because you could say like San Francisco, Los Angeles, these New York City, these big blue cities. Okay, that that always happens. That the government isn't very effective and efficient. In Fairfax County, one of the wealthiest counties in the entire country, a Democratic-run county, but one that used to be competitive and and, and is known for good governance. You basically have the same situation where they're only doing two days a week. They're not committing full time. You would hope that they would do five days a week in the fall, but they haven't committed to that. And a lot of the promises made about opening up schools have been walked back immediately uh, amid backlash from unions and even concerned parents. So I'm not convinced. I mean, if if, if you, you have one of the wealthiest counties, one of the best run counties, supposedly in the country that isn't able to get five days a week. For their students, it really raises some serious fundamental questions. No, it, it it does. And by the way, just speaking of this craziness out there, I, this would be you know, a, a good time for folks on on the left to realize that 
this this is a bad time for them to lose their mind on a variety of things. Did you see that story out of uh, where is it out of? It's 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 out of Portland, Portland, Oregon, about the it's go, the Ida B. Wells School. Did you see that? I'm not sure if I saw. Okay, stories, but I will I will share this with you. Okay, so school mascots, one of these culture issues, and I understand why they want to change it. So there's a there's a school, the the Ida B. Wells Barnett High School in Portland, Oregon. Um, their mascot is the Trojan, and they want to change that. Okay, so they they want to swap it out, and so they decided that hey, why don't we change it to the Evergreens? Because evergreens are characterized by the life-giving force of their their foliage, the strength of their massive trunk and the depth of their roots in an individual tree and as a forest of trees. So, you know, they provide shelter and sustenance. So evergreens. Okay, so Josh, you're pretty good at this sort of thing. (laughs) Guess what the objection to calling, changing the mascot to evergreens is in Portland, Oregon? I, I am still. Yeah. I, 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 I okay, that's good. What, good. what is it? It's a tree, and it might have some suggestion of being involved in lynching. I I kid you not. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering if there's any concern with the imagery. There is using a tree as our mascot. I think everyone comes with blind spots, and I think that might be a really big blind spot because a tree could conjure up reminders of hanging people with ropes from branches. See, this is where you go, just take a deep breath, people. Have you lost your mind? You're overthinking these things. It's a tree. Trees are not problematic. Yeah. I just, I mean, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it's the pandemic. People being cooped up in their house, maybe spending a little too much time on social media is what's, what's driving everyone crazy. But I I am worried that like, we've we've seemed to have lost all kinds of common sense in in, in this country. And and just, we talked at the beginning of this show, the extremes are, are taking over, but it it does feel like we're kind of suffering a national nervous breakdown politically and just logically. Um, And yeah, that's the latest example. So you, you raise an interesting point. I was thinking about this after, after my, my, podcast yesterday um uh, about QAnon and you know the, the the writer who talked about his mother being sucked into QAnon and I, and I it did occur to me I, I wonder whether there is some relationship that that there are too many people who are sitting at home and they have no lives and therefore they are excessively online and so these kinds of things these games these weird you know convolutions you know are are in some ways a product of the fact that we have a bored, isolated nation that's been, you know, needs to get outside, needs to get back to doing something human again. Um, and I hope you're right about this, because because if, if that's true, then when the pandemic ends and people come out of their, their basements and they start, you know, talking to other people and, and having lives again, maybe they won't be quite so crazy. We can only hope. Hey, Josh Crashauer, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.